Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast, the podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And this is Erin. So before we get started today, I just wondered if we had any housekeeping, any news we need to check in on. Judith, anything that we need to bring up to our listeners today? Well, I think it's really exciting uh, to share that this is our 20th episode. So this is kind of a neat milestone for us to hit. I'm really excited that, you know, we're still going strong. I think this has been uh, a lot of fun. There have been some times where scheduling has been kind of challenging at times. And so it's exciting to see that we're still going. We still have things to talk about. And I imagine that that'll stay that way, judging by the conversations that you and I are having off the recording. So today, it's really exciting that we have another guest with us. We're excited to introduce Adrian Jenkins, who is an assistant professor in the English department at Wayne State University. And Adrian can speak to some of the topics that are coming up again and again on our podcast and has some additional insight to share. Adrian is not only on the tenure track, but she is also the mother of four kids. Welcome, Adrian. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And I'm very excited to get to talk to both of you again because it's been quite a while. So thanks so much. Yeah, we're really excited to have you, Adrian. I know I always look to you as a mentor and a guide, but what I think is really super interesting to us, but also our listeners, is that you did somewhat recently transition from a senior lecturer, kind of a really well-known personality and helpful guide in our composition and rhetoric program, but you moved to the tenure track. So we're really excited to hear that part of your journey. But I was wondering if you could go back even a little bit further, because knowing you a bit and knowing your bio, I feel like you might have even started out in the K through 12 sphere teaching there. And I was wondering if you could maybe speak to those experiences and how that all sort of led or culminated to the PhD process and higher education. Yeah, for sure. So I started um, teaching high school in 2000 um, up in Saginaw, Michigan at Valley Lutheran. And uh, I was, I just turned 22 when I started teaching. So like, you know, that sounds so young right now. And, um, and was working with sophomore and senior English students. And, you know, I found that a lot of my experience in the classroom was just helping people get through writing. And I mean, of course, it was also a lot of like on the fly learning about all the things that I had never taken before, but had to start teaching. But it was a lot of working with students who needed support just getting through doing school. And so I think that that was on the forefront of my mind when I transitioned into doing my master's degree at CMU and then um, my graduate degree at Wayne State because I really wanted to think about instructional processes in writing classrooms that could help students who were, you know, just trying to learn kind of the basics of a writing process. And when I think about it, I've really been teaching like first year composition for 21 years then to seniors in high school or to freshmen. And so I think that's, you know, really central to my experience, but it helped me develop a dissertation in inquiry-based learning and in helping students ask questions. And so I think that that high school teaching experience was really foundational to it and uh, just really was a joyful time. That's really great. I think it's really exciting to see that it sounds like you almost started your graduate career out with very practical question of, you know, that came from previous experience that you had. I think that's that sounds like a really great way to do that. Can you tell us a little bit more about your area of specialization and your current research? Yeah, so I think of my research as being in kind of three areas. One of them is in first year composition, and that's kind of a cheat focus area because it allows me to do a lot, a lot of things um, with instructional strategies or with understanding how students are composing in their college writing. But much more narrowly, I have also done some research on reflective writing and um, on using different reflective writing genres to help students learn, but also in trying to understand the ways that they actually compose in reflective writing. And so Thomas Trimble and I have an article out about the ways that students' emotions begin to manifest in their reflective writing and how, as instructors, we can really tap into that and help them engage deeper metacognition. 
Um, and Amy Ladowick and I have an article coming out in Composition Forum in February or March about using reflective writing as a teacher research um, method. While that's all kind of still part of my teaching and will continue to be part of my research inquiry, I've shifted largely into teacher development and um, how that connects to writing program administration in my more recent research. And so right now the project that I'm working on is looking at how the disciplinary values in rhetoric and composition manifest in program documents and in programmatic talk. So like when people are talking about what it means to be a writing teacher, when they're talking about that, and especially in terms of like designing, say, a teaching practicum course, what do writing program personnel say is valued and important? Does that match with what students perceive or graduate students perceive as being um, the integral values of the field? And how are those things communicated through things like a syllabus for a course? So what I'm hoping to start to understand is what values are really field-wide, what values are super local, and um, what we can learn from the way that those are manifesting in program talk or in program documents and stuff like that. So I think it's actually kind of a mix of very practical for the work that we're doing at Wayne State, and then also can have some exciting implications. Well, as exciting as administration could be, but I think it's really exciting. Um, (laughs) Some exciting implications for how uh, writing program administrators work in their in their own programs across the country. A lot of what you're saying really resonates with me, especially even to backtrack thinking about preparing seniors, but also freshmen in the college experience with writing. I feel like so much of what we have to do sometimes is just getting them acclimated to the environment, thinking about what some of those best practices are in the classroom. And one thing that I think is really neat about teaching composition for me and probably for you as well is that a lot of my students, it's their very first year at college, right? And so all these reflective practices you're teaching them, I think they're very valuable from our perspective, but also across the disciplines as well. So they can kind of take these writing practices, these composition practices, and then maybe bring them into their other courses as well, which I think is really neat because most classes have maybe a research essay or some mode of writing. And I think if we can kind of help students key into those best practices in our courses, they can transfer it and transfer it to a number of other areas as well. So something that we've sort of talked about and thought about in this podcast is the continuation of the types of research we do. And you and I hope to kind of focus in on that more in the future as sort of feminist scholars. How does that play a role in our pedagogy, but also our parenting? So we wondered if you see a continuation between your research on pedagogy and your parenting. Are there any overlaps? Do you think that sometimes your experiences with your own children help shape research questions? Does that play into your role at all, your ethos as a professor? Or do you see any continuation or connection there at all? Yeah, I think that, well, in terms of reflective practice, I can definitely say that although it doesn't always hit with, say, a seven-year-old, we do a lot of talking and thinking out loud in this house about why we're doing something. And maybe I'm probably guiding that most of the time. But I think that's a difference maybe between the ways that we grew up in the 80s. And, um, you know, it didn't have a lot of the kinds of conversations with my parents that I have with my kids now, making sure that I answer their questions as they ask them, or that we really think through our motivations for doing something or the impact that we have on our family members or friends by what we do. And that's, that's something that I do work with my freshman students on um, the, a sense of rhetorical responsibility and like understanding how, what you do and how you say something or the way you choose to communicate it has a real impact on people. You know, it's not just like you can say whatever you want because you're just posting it on the internet. You know, it's like though the actually real people in your family or your friends can be affected by that. And so I think in a way, like the, sometimes my research practices um, or my more, my teaching um, strategies or the focus of what I'm teaching does come from real family based experiences. And certainly I try to practice and talk through those things at home. But I think that, um, 
And I'm losing the question. You asked me a bunch of questions at one time. <laughs> That's all right. I'm famous for that. I'm trying to jam that all in. So are there overlaps? Um, do your kids ever help you shape research questions as you yeah. formulate your teaching? Do your, does anything there kind of formulate how you sort of go about your teaching? Um, you know, I think what's interesting is that I'm not sure that they've helped me form research questions, but I do see that I can learn a lot from my children when they're doing their schoolwork. Like there's a lot that I can learn about teaching from watching them. So for example, with Jordan, who's in middle school now, um, she's been working with a friend of hers on writing a novel for two years. I didn't even spend two years writing my dissertation. I just wanted it to be over with. Right. And she's like, she's done so many drafts of this and is constantly doing character development. And they have a super deep collaborative process that they use in their Google and their shared Google document. Sometimes they'll do what they call a story swap where they're working on different, like different books in the series because they have a whole series mapped out and they'll you know they'll they'll give each other permission to do deep editing in each other's documents. And so a lot of the practices that she's doing as a 12-year-old match with what some uh academic writers talk about in their collaborative practices. So it's really cool to see from a from an adolescent perspective like how soon those really productive practices can start to manifest and and can start to be practiced. And I think we forget that sometimes like it's so easy for first year instructors to act as if our students come in not having known anything about writing, which is completely wrong. Like even if they don't do the kind of writing that we do in the first year writing classroom in high school, they have so much experience with writing in some fashion or attitudes about writing that may be positive or may be harmful. So uh, so that takes me to thinking about Logan, who's seven. And uh, during, especially in the spring, when we were in the stay at home and doing like fully remote learning, the worst part of our day was writing his journal in the morning. And at school, he does it very happily. He's in his classroom with his friends. It's a social environment. He's talking with them. He writes his three sentences. At home, it would take us like 40 minutes. And it was so humbling for me because I mean, this is my career. I could go, you know, teach high school right now. I can't work with a seven-year-old. I'm writing three sentences. What it did was help me kind of stretch the ways that I work on invention with him. So we did a lot of talking about what to write. And I have found that in my Zoom conferences with students this semester, we're doing a lot of talking. Uh, obviously, we're doing a lot of talking, but whereas in the past, maybe I'd say bring in a piece of writing, I know that our students right now are very much working on the spot. You know, the 30 minutes or whatever they can devote to a class are kind of doing everything for that class as much as possible when they sit down to do it. And uh, so it's not the ideal version of teaching and learning, but I think we can learn a lot about what can you do in those few minutes with a student, which is like with four kids. I I have to maximize whatever five minute intervals of time I get with each one of my kids and do as much as possible in that. So I think there's like a lot of overlap there in terms of practices. And I'll say too, that the kind of grace that I afford my children is similarly uh, always been given to my students. And so I don't know, I, I don't try to like mom my students at all, but I know that I can be, that I can be kind and kind of like loving in a way. Yeah, there's so much there to respond to. Um, I think some of the things that you're talking about, we've uh, we've addressed here before, too. Aaron has mentioned the way that there's this expectation that because you're already in a teaching profession, it should become easy to you to homeschool your children, which I think we've all had our challenges with that. That's really interesting to see and to hear that's something that your son struggles with at home, but also the the sort of range in experiences that your kids have with writing overall, I think is really interesting. Um, the other thing that struck me in your response was the way that technology sort of figures into the way that our kids learn. That's so different from the way that we learned. 
I observed that with my daughter, even though my daughter is in school right now, they're having them use Google Classroom. I think they're setting them up for a potential shutdown of the schools so that they have sort of the technology in place to do the virtual learning. Um, I love what you said about the collaborative practices. I've mentioned before that my daughter has been working on um, a Google Doc sort of novel that she is writing. She's been just recently putting together a Google Slides show about the election um, with all of the information that she could gather about the election. And it helps her think about how to present that information to other people, right? Just in terms of, you know, a Google document is different from a Google slide. And so I think what you're saying there about thinking about audiences and thinking about collaborative processes there's so much there that we can learn from our kids that then applies later. And like you said, they have so much experience writing already. I've mentioned this too before. I've been impressed with the kinds of things that my daughter has been picking up and has been learning in regards to writing over the last two or three years already. Um, and I remember definitely, you know, being the kind of instructor that was in the classroom that just felt that um, the students, some of the students were kind of blank slates. And like you said, it is humbling to see how much our kids are actually already learning in their early years and then through middle school and high school that as instructors, you know, we can work with or work from. Thank you for sharing all those things. There's a lot of food for thought for me there. Um, and we're always t excited to see, you know, on the podcast, the ways that our research and parenting come together. More generally speaking, um, with less focus on sort of like the specific research that you're doing, how has it been for you to combine your work as an academic with your life as a parent? Do you feel that the academy is overall conducive to having a large family or not? And what are some of the specific challenges that maybe you are facing? So I would say that it's not not conducive <laughs> to, having, <laughs> right. to having a big family, um, but I think that it takes a lot of decision making on on my end to be able to make it work. And I'm very very blessed, I think, to work in a place where in a in, in a program and department where families have always been honored. And that if there's ever been a family need that the that the program has supported that. I mean, I had two of my children while I was in grad school and uh, two of them while I was in a full-time teaching position there. And so, you know, how do you make that work, right? Like, it's tricky. And I will say, too, that people always ask me how I do that. <laughs> And I tell them, and I'm not joking, like the only thing that I do is teaching or, you know, work and being a mom. And I, I think that if you want a, a pretty simplified life, then doing both and, and working in the academy and spending a lot of time working on learning how to be a good parent is possible. Um, if I wanted to do a lot of other kinds of things, if I thought I was going to be a very glamorous person or something, then I really definitely picked the wrong track. And I'm sure we've all had like fleeting moments of envy where we look at people who like go on vacation. Well, not right now, but you know, go on vacation or, you know, like at five o'clock they get to relax. Um, and I think that, that one of the ways that I've worked on kind of coping with that is to set very clear boundaries for my um, family time and my work time. And so it's not perfect. And, you know, I'll, I'll maybe save some of the, some of these points for later in the conversation, but I, for a long time made sure, like, I don't do any work after seven. And that's different from when I was in grad school and I had two kids. Because I remember getting home from classes and like doing more homework at 10 o'clock at night. And now I'm like, I sleep for nine hours a night just to be able to do family and, and work. So that, I guess that's one of my trade secrets is I enjoy sleeping and that's like my fun time. <laughs> I get a lot of it. But, uh, you know, I think that like to go back with how I started this response, it's about making choices about what you want to prioritize and making sure that that's the right choice for your family as well. And uh, so for me, 
it, a lot of things I've let go of a lot of socializing and, um, which is why it's like so exciting to talk to you two today. (laughs) But I think it's good because I feel just always like I'm doing what the work that's in front of me every day and that's gratifying and it's a simple life, but it's, um, it's pretty great. That's really relatable. And I really hear you with your response because I sort of joke about that as well, because I also have the four kids and I'm just like very clear. I don't do a lot of outside activities. I mean, um, so in some ways, the pandemic has really, you know, not changed my life all that much. Besides, you know, how I'm delivering classes and things like that. But with socialization, you just don't necessarily, you know, something has to give. And I think I used to look towards other younger faculty members or younger folks in the program and with a little bit of envy, like you're saying, like, wow, you know, they can go out and do these things. But I have a different life and I'm happy with that life. And I talked to a colleague about this, like, it's really great just to get home from work and hang out and, you know, whatever that is for your family, whether it's doing something really productive, like writing or playing or just even sitting around and watching a movie on TV. That's my socialization, right? That's what I look forward to at the end of the day. And so thinking about all this, we're really interested in hearing a bit more. I'm super personally interested in hearing about this, uh, this transition from being a full-time lecturer, which as I know, is a very teaching heavy load. But then what it was like to move from that full-time lecturer position, senior lecturer to tenure track, I'm sure there's some give and take there about balancing class to research. What have been the major differences between working as the lecturer and the tenure track professor? So when I was working as a full-time lecturer, I was teaching three classes a semester, at least sometimes four or sometimes three in a directed study. And I was doing a ton of service work. So Uh, conducting teaching observations, facilitating the teaching observation process for the program, organizing the mentoring program, um, doing sometimes doing assessment or curriculum development and stuff like that. And now that I'm working as a tenure track professor, the service, I took the advice of many of my colleagues and mentors, and they said, you can't do everything you were doing before. And so I do like strange for me, but like a kind of like bare minimum service and and I'm just doing like a couple of things. Um, I took their advice and I had let that go, kind of keeping in mind, like I don't need to run the program. (laughs) Like this is not all for me. There are so many other brilliant, uh, wonderful people who can do also do this work. And so while I shed a lot of that, I'm still teaching two classes a semester. Um, One thing that's been different and harder this semester is that I'm teaching two completely new preps. And so after years of teaching like first year writing, which I taught differently all the time anyway, I'm doing more content-based classes instead of process-based classes. And that's been like a big switch for me. So suddenly it's kind of like almost back to my first years of teaching in general, where it was like brand new material and I'm learning it, you know, in the weeks before, months before I'm trying to help students learn it as well. So it's kind of exciting and really fun, but also way more work than I thought where in, in my former position, I kind of knew what to expect. I knew the, I knew the way that a semester sort of fluctuated and like the ebbs and flows of it and whatever. And so I think that's been kind of a a challenge is um, learning more material and reading a ton more than, uh, than I had to read in, in my former classes, which had a much more narrow focus. But one of the other big differences, and this is the exciting one for me is that now, after being in the profession for 20 years, I actually get to write as the major focus of my daily work. So you all know, right, teachers are writing constantly, but most of what we're writing is like assignment descriptions and posts and feedback and emails. So that's still like half of my writing work, but the other half is writing my research And that's so exciting because to be able to consider it as a part of the work that I'm actually supposed to do 
in the hours of the day while the kids are at school is really exciting. So I've, I've very much enjoyed that difference. Now, it's a lot, I mean, going back to socialization and pandemic aside, even last year when we were on campus, it was a, quite a difference to suddenly be kind of isolated from the work that that I had been doing before, from the collaboration uh, with a lot of people. And so I was really missing that as a feature. And really collaboration was always a, um, a heavy part of my of my uh, service and, and research life. And now I have to kind of be very selective about when I collaborate because it's, um, and how, and, and the projects I choose to collaborate on, because it's important that I am publishing on my own, that I'm kind of forging my own research path. And that's hard for me. Not that I can't research and write on my own. I can do that. It's fun. But I have such deep joy in collaborating with my colleagues, and I have to, for a little while, kind of try to temper that so that I can, I guess, like, <laughs> establish myself as an individual scholar. And I get it. It's part of the way that earning tenure works. It's part of doing this scholarly game <laughs> that we're playing, I guess. But um, it's a hard one. And, you know, I was reading recently about there are there are some scholars who like Eden Lunsford, who have written, they had a had a had a years, years and years long collaboration and have have tried to make arguments for why collaborative work can't be more prominent in the academy. And I, I guess I hope that it'll still find its way, because I think that for me has been one of the challenging, major challenging differences between my work as a full-time lecturer and as a tenure track professor. That's really interesting. I hadn't really considered that aspect of it, but that really makes a lot of sense, especially knowing, you know, sometimes it can just be so rewarding to have those conversations and to look forward to them, right? That's another means for us to kind of share our joy and passion about the work. And honestly, there's not always, we've talked about this as well, there's not always that room and space within the family unit, you know, for your children or whomever else to get really excited. There's a very few individuals that you can sit down and really have a great, meaningful conversation about what it is you do and that actually get it. So I can see the need for that or, you know, the desire to keep that collaboration up. I also like what you were saying about, you know, having that space to write. That sounds so appealing and so great to me. I really get that. And that has been sort of a different challenge for me working in the teaching heavy arena, right? That like, if I want to do any writing, I kind of have to figure out when I can do it maybe during the summer when my teaching load is a little bit lighter because I usually only teach maybe one or two classes in the summer. So that's a time for me to really hunker down and think about writing. And I do miss that space because it was important and I do really enjoy writing. I wondered if you could like take us back and tell us a little bit more about the application and hiring process, because we do have listeners that are still actually in grad school who are aiming for these tenure track positions. And I just wondered if you had any advice about this for anyone that is trying to get into one of these elusive positions. Some of our listeners might be like me working more in a career college, community college setting. Do you have any words of wisdom or could you walk us through what it was like applying for the job and the hiring process? So a lot of people ask me this question and um, and I think it's because, you know, I, I know that our kind of group that we were in school with and that we worked with at Wayne State um, was a, a lot of us were in kind of similar positions like having families, doing grad school and trying to find a job that could support our lives while we were figuring out how do we get to the next step. So I get why I'm able to ask <laughs> right. that question. And I think most of my advice then ends up being a little bit of here's what I tried to do, but also here's don't do what I did. Um, and so I'll talk about both of those things. Um, and I'll start with the don't do what I did, which was, and I, I spoke about this a few minutes ago, don't try to do everything because cram packing your CV with all of the service and all of the conferences isn't going to help you actually make strategic career moves. Um, it'll make your CV really long and, and, then, and it'll make you really tired. 
and um, and not always able to focus on the things that really help. So here's what I think is really important to keep in mind if you are in grad school or if you're in a position and want to move to a tenure track position. And like like you said, Erin, um, they're like so coveted and like rare and precious right now. It seems like lucky to be able to even find one to apply to that fits within what our um, what our qualifications are. So I would say um, identify what your research agenda is and fine tune your um, any minimal conference presentations and your writing work to that agenda. Like be able to say these two or three things are what I do and not, oh, I did this one, you know, this thing that's kind of cool. Like I think that a lot of my early research work, maybe eight or nine years ago, coming off of the dissertation was stuff that I thought was cool. And I was like, hey, I got my PhD. I can do whatever I want now. And not all of it had legs for helping me get to writing a good application for a tenure track position. So, you know, when it was like the teacher development stuff or the right, the program administration work was really helpful for me. The reflective writing work was really helpful for me. But I did some other things. I kind of tried to play around with some rhetoric stuff that my friends were really into. So we had fun traveling to conferences. <laughs> and I can't, you know, I wouldn't trade that like social time and those memories, but it really didn't help me at all. And um, so focus a research agenda. And then the other thing I would say is match any service you do to your career goals. So especially in the last few years, I was very proactive in trying to take up opportunities that would allow me to develop administrative experience and an administrative section on my CV, even though I wasn't a writing program administrator. So like managing the mentoring committee was a long time thing, but I also took smaller opportunities in summer of 2018. A graduate student, Kelly Plant, and I developed the portfolio collection system that we used for a couple of years. And so we did that as part of a directed study. But that allowed me to say, like, I've developed the system that this that the entire program used. And uh, I, I administered teaching observations for a couple of years also for the program. And so I tried to like seek out those opportunities and say, oh, I'll do that. Like instead of raising my hand for everything, I volunteered for the things that would help me say, I, I'm prepared to do writing program administration. Um, all of those things focus on, in some way on first year writing or on teacher development. So they matched with my research agenda anyway. And so I think that those are kinds of, I think you have to like kind of curate your CV and like your, your opportunities to toward the thing you want to do. And then the other thing that I would say is develop a, a wider mentoring network beyond like your dissertation chair. I did a lot of this with a sort of fledgling network of peer mentors and um, they're still, my peers are probably my best mentors because we can talk to each other about things that are impacting us as parents, as coworkers, um, and also research decisions. But it wasn't until I actually got into my tenure track job and was assigned a mentor that I was able to really figure out what I was supposed to be doing. And so I think that that's like, uh, that's super integral. And, and one thing that I haven't done yet that I would say that I still want to do is reach out to other people in my field that are doing work in teacher development and connect with them. Um, but also to other, other single mothers and like in that are working in academia and, and work with them and, and have those people be my peer mentors. I think those three things, develop a research agenda, match your service to your career goals, and widen your mentoring network are, are three important things. In terms of the application and hiring process, I don't have a lot to say about it. It was stressful, and I only applied for one job, so I can't imagine what it must be like to do more. I didn't really have the opportunity to go outside of uh, the area. So... Um, so mine was very limited, and 
you know, if you have follow up questions about like specific aspects of that, I can try to talk about it. But it was, um, it's a long road. And it's I think you need to make sure that you have people that love you and can support you through that process. Because it allowed me to kind of like rise up and and figure out how to be the best academic I could be. But it was kind of nerve wracking at the same time. It is. And I think there's those three points that you uh, that you mentioned, I think, are really, truly very helpful. It helps when you have a network that understands how difficult it is. But I think sometimes for people who aren't working in the field or who aren't academics, it's sometimes hard to grasp just how difficult it is to land an academic job and how much time goes into writing each individual um, application as compared to writing other job applications. So I think that's important too, to have support people that really see the process and understand how difficult it, it is. And I think that you're right too. I liked how you phrased it as curating your CV. I think that, you know, when you start grad school, there's, I, you know, I think Erin and I both did this to take some of our seminar papers to conferences just to get a feel for what a conference is like, what it's like to present your work. And if those things end up not going into, you know, your dissertation, then I think that's okay. But like you said, once you get to the point where like maybe you know what your dissertation is or you know what your second project is, because most of the job applications also want you to already present an idea for the follow-up project, I think it's important at that point to really channel your energies. And it might even make sense to cut some of those lines from your CV um, and just bank them for yourself as like, okay, I have this experience at this conference now. Um, and that'll help me at future conferences, but I don't need to share that with every hiring committee that I did this particular thing if it then helps me to sort of present a more clear persona. Anyway, I th- like I said, I think those are really, really great points that you make. Um, you do mention that you are, you know, working or trying to work with different mentors and you sort of made brief mention of another transition that you went through around the same time, which is moving from a two-parent household to being a single parent. And I was wondering if you would be willing to talk a little bit more about how that change in your parenting and co-parenting arrangement has impacted the arrangements that you've made in your life and in your work. Um, you alluded to this earlier too. Um, what are some arrangements that you've made to be able to live both of those identities to the fullest? Or would you say that that's still a work in progress? I think that it's definitely a work in progress. And it's weird to say, you know, Aaron said earlier that life hasn't changed very much during the pandemic. And actually, I think it's made it easier for me. And I hate saying that because it's so hard for so many people. But in my tiny little world here, what has happened is I don't have to arrange part of my week anymore, 10 hours of my week to drive to Detroit. I'm always around to take the kids to school and to pick them up. And I will tell you that since last August, the kids have been with me 98% of the time. So um, their dad works um, construction and he's been working like seven, six or seven day weeks. And so I don't really have time. You know, I know some co-parenting situations, they're, they're like 50-50 or whatever. And so, uh, so somebody might, somebody who doesn't know me might think like, oh, well, half the time. She can do whatever she wants, you know, and like, why isn't she working faster on things? And the reality is like, oh, no, all my weeks are just kind of constant movement between my schoolwork, their schoolwork, you know, getting everybody showered, doing laundry, and um, just kind of keeping everything afloat. So I think um, what has been better for me since I have just been able to live with my kids and kind of manage everything on my own is that, like I've referenced a few times in this conversation, like life is a lot simpler and things are generally just happy. And so, you know, there's a lot when you remove like tons of layers of stress from your life, then um, it's really easy to just do what I have to do every day. And when I say easy, not like, 
oh, I'm sitting, I'm never sitting around with nothing to do. <laughs> like, there's, always, there's always something to do. I mean, you might see me post like a picture on Instagram of like me watching West Wing on the weekend. And that's because it's like, finally me time. I'm watching old episodes of the West Wing. <laughs> you know, I think, I think when you talk about like challenges for single parents in the academy, I think sometimes it's that misperception that maybe we like n- nobody knows what somebody's home life is like um unless you know them deeply and so i think it's important to know that all single parents are living like different kinds of lives with their kids that they're facing challenges that probably aren't on the surface and i mean p- you know married parents in the in the academy are also facing different challenges so um i'm not saying that they're not i think it's been important for me to learn how to be open about some things like with my coworkers that maybe in the past I would have just handled. Like I wouldn't have said, Oh, I can't do a meeting at that time because I have to pick the kids up from school. And now I'm very apparent, like, no, I cannot meet at three, between three and four, because that's when I'm picking everybody up from school. And I used to like rely on other people my ex-husband or my parents to kind of cover things for me so that I could do whatever work needed. And now it's like, no, this is what family needs. And I will make work, work around that. And again, I feel very like lucky to be working in a, in an environment where I can do that. And I feel comfortable like after, after working in the same place for 10 years. And I mean, this is like a difference for me in the transition from being a lecturer into the tenure track is that I didn't shift locations. So, and a lot of people are going to go through that. Like most people don't get to keep working in the same place, but start this new position. I'm super lucky to do that because I didn't have to move. I didn't have to go through a lot of major life transitions. I mean, the divorce is a major life transition and it was really hard, but I got to keep other things kind of the same. And so um, in terms of like living my identities to the fullest, oh gosh, you know, you said, is it still a work in progress? I think, I think it's like I do all work and school and then I get this tiny little bit of Adrian time. Like Adrian, who's not a teacher and not a mom, but just that person, like the 16-year-old version of me or whoever she is, I don't know. Sometimes she goes to kickboxing and sometimes she watches The West Wing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she like comes out in very limited moments and I would like her to have a little more time but right now uh she can she can just do the mom and teacher thing I like how you suggested that you've moved away from you know having some blurry boundaries because I recall and I'm still guilty of this a little bit as well I recall a time if there was a work meeting or some kind of committee work, I just say, yep, sure, I'll be there. No questions asked. And I didn't really negotiate or try to like ask for any help, which is weird because I'm sure people would say, oh, well, let's try it for a different time. If 3.30 doesn't work for you, let's do it at 1.30. But I was always kind of like hesitant to ask for that. And so I really, it's it's nice to hear that other people are kind of like doing that and being assertive in a way that I would like to kind of aim for as well. Something that it sounds like you're probably pretty good at is keeping up with routines. And I wondered if um, you have a routine now for research or writing. And then one other thing, I know we're kind of getting close to our closing time, but I know on social media, you talk a little bit about writing, maybe even writing some poetry. Um, Are you able to do any of that? Is that 16-year-old Adrian out there still? Um, That resonated with me as well because uh, 16-year-old Aaron was also into the poetry (laughs) and kind of that kind of writing. Does that, is that an outlet for you at all during this time? Are you able to do any creative writing as a mode of making it through this weird time in the world? You know, what has been really cool over the last seven or eight months is that I have found that approaching my, even my scholarly writing from a narrative perspective has, I'm, I'm learning about more ways to do that so that I feel myself a lot more in the work, the writing work I'm doing for work, which has been gratifying, but I think I'm never afraid to step away from my work work to like, to write poems. And you know, like, like serious poets probably look at the stuff that I post on Instagram and they're like, what, this is stupid. And I will tell you, like, I'll think a poem 
I'll think a poem for about 10 minutes and then I write it in my notes app on my phone and then I post it. <laughs> like it's not it's not deep work, but it's usually an expression of something I've been thinking about for a long time that suddenly some suddenly like I find the words that I like for it and I write it down. Um and that's always for me very personal stuff. It's not, you know, I I write about things that are like constantly rolling in my head and then I finally they like come out. So I, you know, I actually haven't written as much poetry over the last several months. I've a few things. And I think I think it's because I am so much at peace with with just doing the work of every day. And you know, I mean it'd be kind of nice. I'm just, I'll probably write one later about how like why is my life so boring? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, am I really satisfied with this? Is like this what it's come to? For me, the writing practice of this time, not having to commute has given me 10 more hours a week. So like I get into, I do writing every day. I don't have a perfect practice of like, you know, 9 to 10 a.m. is my writing time. But I do make a specific plan every day that I will get like one or two very specific tasks done for my research writing. And I do them. And sometimes I write in the morning and sometimes it's like, oh, shoot, it's 2.30 and I only have half an hour before I go and pick up the kids. But if I get this in right now, then I've done it. And, it, you know, kind of taking all the practices we tell our students again and saying, like, you just, just get something down. And that feels a lot better. So I can definitely say that, especially in the in the last nine months or so that we've been home, it's probably, I'm probably stretching it. <laughs> Maybe it hasn't been nine months. The 17 years that we've been home. Yeah, it feels like nine years. <laughs> that the writing time has been very peaceful for me. And even when I don't know what the heck I'm doing, if I'm writing like a grant proposal I'm working on right now, and I'm struggling with pieces of it and some pieces of it come together. But the fact that I just get to spend time doing that has been awesome and very much like a reminder that that my work now is being a writer. And that is, uh, it's not the kind of cool writing I thought I would do maybe when I was like in my early 20s. And I was like, I'm going to write like creative nonfiction. But I still could do that if I really wanted to after I get tenure. So. The writing, you know, for me always has a lot to do with um, reading something as well. So just to switch the uh, direction of the conversation that way a little bit, have you been reading at all? Do you have any time to read? And if so, have you been reading anything interesting that you would um, share with us and our listeners? So I, um, most of my reading is kind of geared toward what I have to write about. So I do a lot of quick reading in um, teacher development books and stuff like that. The only reading I do for fun, I don't really, I don't really think about scholarly reading as fun. That's all work for me. But I did recently for a research group that I'm in, uh, I read April Baker Bell's Linguistic Justice. And I spent Sunday afternoon reading that. And she's an amazing writer. She's writing about things that we all need to be learning and practicing as teachers who need to be aware that our Black students come to our classrooms with a rich linguistic experience. And like, it's just an amazing book and I super recommend it. It's from NCTE. It just came out this year and she's won awards for it. So that's Linguistic Justice by April Baker Bell. And um, other than that, like I, like I said, I don't really read for fun. My bookshelf, my nightstands are full of books that I mean to read. Um, my church read a book on prayer by Timothy Keller and they were talking about that in sermons for a few weeks. So that was a, a good read to think about something that I, is really important in my life. And other than that, I'm reading a novel self-published by one of my former high school students. And uh, it's called Circumstantial Fortune. And it's a fantasy book. And I don't really read fantasy. So it's kind of like, like a fun way for me to spend my time. That's really cool to see, though, that, um, that your students are, you know, taking their writing that way. That's awesome. I was just going to say, I've really enjoyed hearing about your experiences. And this podcast, once again, is kind of a social hour for all of us involved. And it's just really fun to talk to you again about writing and composition and thinking about these ideas that are so important in our work. 
I just really wanted to thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule, as it sounds, to spend uh, the morning with us. Thank you so much for talking with us. But I feel like there's, once again, so much more we could dive into later on in the future. So I hope you'll come back and visit again sometime. That would be super fun. Thanks again so much for having me. It's really nice to talk to both of you, and I miss you. Same. It's been great talking with you. Um, I have some really uh, interesting takeaways from this conversation. There were a lot of things that you said that gave me food for thought. So I look forward to thinking about that and maybe hopefully asking you some more questions in the future. Meanwhile, that's it from us for today. If any of our listeners want to reach out to us, you can do so. As always, uh, you can shoot us an email at phdandparentingpodcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Instagram at phdandparenting. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. We look forward to hearing from you soon.